why did I get an archaeology? I got an archaeology totally by accident. You don't hear that very often. Well, well you usually hear, uh, I've, I've wanted to be one my whole life. Yeah, I wanted to be a firefighter, a doctor, a nurse, and Batman. But uh, <laughs> I um, actually, yeah, okay, the real answer goes kind of like this. So I was at, I just started taking anthropology classes. Um, I can't even say I really liked them. I took like cultural anthropology and I failed my first test. Uh -huh. um, so I clearly wasn't very good at it. Yeah. But um, my girlfriend at the time, her mom was in the same class with me. So I had a certain level of competition, so so I, I got better. <laughs> <laughs> it was that competitive drive that led you into it. Uh, no, the, actually, the really the great version of this. So take two. So well, I got into archaeology because when I went to Berkeley, I was um, I was an undergraduate and I was a, majoring in belief. Hmm. Why do people believe stuff um, at all? And. Uh, my advisor, who was uh, teaching a class on the philosophy of religion, so I was a philosophy major, was like, yeah, we don't really study that stuff in philosophy. So kind of proved in the class that my major would be dumb. Yeah. But meanwhile, I took a class with Ruth Tringham called The Archaeology of Architecture. And my mind was completely melted and blown, and I summarily dropped out of school. <laughs> True story. I was like, uh, I clearly need to get my act together. Yeah. Um, so I didn't go into undergrad as a as an eighteen year old. I you know I came in after you know junior college and all the other things, and I fought my way to get into Berkeley at all. So so I dropped out of school, went went away for a while, got back in, and uh, just dove deep into archaeology from there. Wow. Now. That's my story. So uh, what's kept you going? Why did you stay in it? Uh, I, I'd say two things. Um, the, I feel like archaeology has, provide, has provided uh, me uh, a way to cope with the insanity of our modern timeline. That we all think about things like, like we've got it all figured out in uh -huh. the last week. We, and all the classic things that we repeat the mistakes of the past are actually true. Yeah. We just sit there and look at archaeology and go, so we know this is going to go wrong, right? We know it. Right. <laughs> like 800 different examples of how this is going. Oh, wait, there it went. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Didn't see that one coming. Um, and I, I'm, I, I love I love the, the puzzle. I mean, you know, the, the whole concept of archaeology to this very day still makes no sense to me like, that the idea that we're going to use these, like, the, the dregs of people's trash to try to figure out how they lived. Yeah. But um, but I love the aesthetic of it. So, I mean, as a photographer and, and, and someone who's kind of focused mostly on, on media and archaeology, that's, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving. So, I'm, I'm very, I'm still, I feel that it, of all the things that I, if I could redo it all, I wouldn't redo any of it differently in terms of thinking about archaeology versus another major because or, or topic of study um, because I feel like it has it does really offer a lot of uh, um, legitimate insight into what it means to be people and um, I, I felt 
I, I wouldn't say that it, that archaeology is more objective, say, than anthropology, which is the study of the living humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know plenty of archaeological beer discussion about which is more, you know, legit anyway. It's like, well, you know, you can just make it all up, right? Because <laughs> all you have is like, or, and yeah, obviously the other challenge is that the, we're dealing with things that have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. But I feel, I guess the, I feel like it's like a, it's a majorly cool way to, to keep trying to remember what, um, what was forgotten and bring it back into living memory. Feels like a pretty good mission. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I couldn't have thought of a, a better way to say that. <laughs> I feel like I have a, a very very similar story in that. Uh, I found it by accident, dropped out of school, and then when I came back, I was like, well, I need to study something. I may as well study things that are interesting to me, and it was, it, I grabbed on to very similar things. The, the idea of finding lost knowledge and trying to piece it back together was just fascinating to me, and trying to get inside the minds of the way people lived. Uh, and like revive not necessarily even revive but just understand lost ways of living uh, I mean that's cool what was your what was your uh, major before you left out of school an engineer yeah. I sucked at it yeah math math hard science physics chemistry yeah yeah now I had to, <laughs> I had to, I still love the analytical parts of, of engineering and I think that I've found ways to keep those elements in my approach to archaeology, but uh, I had to do a much softer science. Yeah, I hear that for sure. Um, I um, I don't know what this is for, but I'll, I'll just rant on for one more little thing. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I had a pretty, I mean, just beyond blessed academic life for sure in a sense that my I, I had crafted a pretty outrageous and I'm using this term quite carefully outrageous uh, dissertation topic and it was an unattainable concept similar to my undergraduate which was also literally project chimera and unattainable dream so once again you know let's set ourselves up for not for failure but for incredible challenge which was trying to understand why instead of looking at you know rock art or art or color from the from the kind of perspective of that like wall paintings because i was working at chatarhiyuk at the time i became fascinated with why did people paint walls at all why were they painting these walls red why red you know other than being in some roman villa you know why would you paint your walls red no one paints their walls red these days, you might actually see a wall painted red, but typically speaking, in the 90s, like, you know, we're kind of in a pastel era. <laughs> <just saying. laughs> so why would we do that? Why would we do that? And uh, so I, I obsessed with vision. I really wanted to try to get to the true color. Like, how can we re- measure color? How do we measure color in archaeology? We use Munzel. What are we actually measuring? You see how this is unraveling? So what yeah. happened is people, typically what was happening at the time, still is, honestly, is either we just don't do it at all or 
we use phenomenology to kind of get into the minds of like how how we would have seen back in the past. So my thesis became a two-part thesis. One was um, as archaeologists who are working in the world, we use our we are as we said a soft science. We really do use our visual acuity, our visual senses over all things as observers and that is our science and that's a very uncomfortable thing and ruth is you know actually ruth tringham has uh, argued um with me intentionally about it it's really opened her sorry bad pun but opened her eyes to the idea of like wait a minute what about all these other stuff but i'm like yeah show me show me what else we're doing besides we use a trowel and there's some haptic stuff going on and maybe some auditory <clears throat> things with the sound different sounds are going on but we got to be honest about it. Right. So then the the the, the hypothesis was it turns out if you can if you can actually see more stuff like if you can separate figure from ground, then you find more stuff. Which what oh wait influences the science because you're finding more stuff. For finding more flakes of stone in the landscape, <clears throat> and that's what we measure because we write it all down because we want to do math because we want to pretend that we're scientists sometimes. Then. If we're finding more of it, then it, inf it influences our results. Right. Duh. But so it's this weird blend <laughs> of qualitative and quantitative, and you keep going like chicken and the egg with like you know which one's leading the research. But we're using our eyes as the center, so we'll use you know um, mass spectrometry, and we'll use you know uh, XRF on all these other sensors, um, total stations, but we'll use our eyes as the as a sensor for doing most of the things that we do. So how can we kind of form a better uh, ergonomic environment for for us as, as human observers, yeah. as opposed to turning us into robots? And to this day, that's only been, like that's continued to be my obsession. So I did like vision testing of archeologists and how we see. Um, and then the other part of it, so that was the first part, was how we see now. And the other part was, I do not believe in any way that we should even talk about the notion of that there's some form of phenomenology of archaeology that we can, the harder we work, the closer we'll get to seeing in the past is actually a lie. I mean, and I, I'm very careful. I mean, there's very few things I get dogmatic about, but that's actually physiologically true. Right. So you can go cog sci, which I did. You can go phenomenology, I mean, sorry, um, psychophysics, which is literally how the photons of light come into your mm -hmm. eye, which is a non-repeatable event. No yeah. one, no one, no two people see the same. And there isn't any real way to test that. And I feel like that is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So when I, when I figured that out, like when I got the vision scientist working with me and we looked at that stuff, I went, okay, my mind just got exploded and it took me almost six years to write a 30 page PhD, 30. <laughs> Three zero, not three hundred, not three thousand, right. thirty pages, <laughs> because it's like this is like I, 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 I yeah. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I'm amazed that I didn't give up. But. You sure bit off a challenge. So spoiler alert, why red? Great. So you know, you know when you see like in a, um, either your Volkswagen Jettas because they got it right, or um, airplanes where or submarines where they keep the lights red. Or the new theater mode on your on your i on your on your Apple Watch, all these all these things um, only excite the rod versus cone vision in your eyes. 
And if you keep the rod vision working, so rod, either either rod vision what you use to see at night, low acuity but higher ability to, to see light. Once cone vision comes in, which gives you color, it blinds the rod vision. So look it all up. It's all it's all it's all legit. It's a real simple binary system. When you see at night, you know you know you, you see better in these the wavelengths that basically are more towards infrared that part of the spectrum. So by ver the, the the theory was uh, that my Gunilla Hagerson Portnoy, um, just an absolute genius vision scientist, said, is you know if we paint our walls red and we have firelight, which is kind of a golden yellow, um, low color temperature, then they'll appear brighter. They'll actually appear to our eyes as we adjust whiter. So they it really will, will, will provide uh, a brightness to the room. And it's absolutely true. That's amazing. Yeah, it made a lot of sense. If you're in a room, if you think about Chateauhuyuk, right? The theory is that there are no doors, but we found doors. But let's just say that there are no doors and you're coming in through the roof, which lots of the houses, this agglutinated houses were. Where's the hole for the roof? Over the fireplace. So you're, you're crawling through smoke to get out. We prove that that's all possible. Um, it, when you're in the room, you're in a room with a hole. It's winter. It's cold. So are you covering the roof? Where's the smoke going? All these things come into play. Huh. In a smoky, sooty environment with low lights, and you want to be able to see each other, and you want to make the, you want to maximize the lighting, and also there's soot everywhere. Yeah, if your walls are bright white; they're just going to be black, <clears throat> and we proved that also. Micromorphology, Wayne Matthews' work. So, add that all up, and having walls painted any color would be good, and then it just turns out that red, specifically of all the colors, and they had other colors by the way, but this was the color that really would would be the best possible color to paint your wall if you wanted to make your room quote brighter so that's what i came up with none of, none, of, none of that ever made it into my thesis because i just gave up on that stuff it's <laughs> <laughs> focused on why do archaeologists see in the in, yeah you know, but um but but there it is nice Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Before we jump into this week's episode on the work-life balance with Kirsten Lopez, uh, one final reminder that healthcare open enrollment is still going. You have one more week to go. The deadline is December 15th. Go to healthcare.gov. Um, while you still can. Yeah, while you still can. Uh, yeah, uh, and also... Push at local and state levels for state uh, single-payer healthcare. It's really gaining momentum. Maine, for example, is looking like it's going to go single-payer, even though this horrendous tax bill is affecting everybody else. Um, and reason number 6,581 why I keep harping on healthcare is if we are sick and poor, we are severely limited in our abilities to pursue archaeology or any other passions in our lives. So healthcare is important. It's also the cornerstone to freedom and equality. Another action item. Uh, our National Park Service is in trouble. Uh, they are 
contemplating a rate hike. Uh, if you listen to the previous episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast, I talk a little bit about that in detail. But public comments are open until December 22nd. So Google National Park Service rate hike and uh, provide your comment. Just just let them know that uh, making the park visitors shell out what the federal government should be funding anyhow is um, kind of ass backwards. Uh, and related to that, uh, the government is looking at dramatically shrinking or removing protections for national monuments. I'll have an upcoming episode with a Dine tribal archaeologist to talk about what's going on with Cedar Mesa and Bears Ears, so keep that on your radar. And in uh, timely fashion, the horrendous tax bill that the ghouls in Congress are trying to pass, uh, they may have already passed it by the time this episode airs, is going to make it really hard for grad students and families. And today's guest, Kirsten Lopez, happens to check both of those boxes, grad students and families. So enjoy this episode. So Kirsten Lopez is uh, one of the hosts of the Women in Archaeology podcast, and that's over on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Um, she's also the first archaeologist that I met in Oregon. And so when I moved to Oregon about a year and a half ago, I had sent you an email, mm -hmm. and I forget who put us in touch. Um, and uh, someone from the Archaeology Podcast Network was like, "Hey, there's a there's a another podcast host out in out in Portland. You gotta you gotta meet up." And so you know we yeah. we connected through that, and it's it's just been fun, you know, connecting through archaeology and all that, and going to AOA meetings and and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> you're uh, so you're involved with the Association of Oregon Archaeologists, mm -hmm. and uh, you're also a grad student at Oregon State University. Yes. And uh, I'm really interested in your research because it's super cool. You you work on some awesome sites. So tell us a little bit about your research, like what you're working on. So my thesis research is sort of a culmination of a lot of things, and how I got to what I'm doing is a whole other story, but... What I'm actually working on is integrating the fields of like geology and geochemistry with archaeology and specifically some areas of archaeology that are often understudied or at least not often thought about or considered. So I work with basketry um, in the Great Basin, the Northern Great Basin. So sites like Paisley and Catlow Caves are some of the better known ones. Lovelock is in uh, Western Nevada and that's a similar similar site. Um, so what I'm actually doing is I am looking at sourcing the materials that are used to create the baskets. So things like grasses, um, bark uh, from trees or bushes such as uh, sagebrush, and sourcing that to where that plant grew. So this can give us an idea about how um, harvest sites are used or have been changed through climate change. Um, I'm focusing on a period that is late Pleistocene, early Holocene, so Younger Dryas, um, and uh, just after that to see how things have changed. Um, there's a number of factors, of course, that kind of play into that. Um, one is just understanding how the climate has changed in that area, um, which isn't super well understood, but it has enough information to you know kind of to know that there has been a lot of change the 
so there's a couple aspects of this of course I have to know the basketry I have to know the sites well and then also the chemistry and the geology of the sites so these are all different like subspecialties you yeah. could say and it's it's been an adventure getting to know um sort of uh a lot about various things and that's I always like to think of archaeology as like the best uh job for anyone who's totally scatterbrained and can go down <laughs> any rabbit hole for like ages yes like geochemistry what <laughs> yeah. this is great <laughs> time to dip into geology <laughs> for a little bit exactly like uh but you know i can nerd out on just the creation of the baskets themselves for eons as well and those are very different directions i mean you have a lot of cultural anthropology a lot of ethnic ethnography i get to read um and just you know talking with modern tribal uh, basket makers is another whole fascinating window of getting to know how people use and have used and how they know their source sites which has really given me a really neat perspective about how this um these resources have been used and how it's changed but also like what might be expected and framing my research questions um in a way that don't disregard sort of the mind frame of like these are the best resources we're gonna go a really long way to get them uh -huh. today um whereas like you know ten thousand years ago it probably wasn't that different but how far was really far away like how far <laughs> was close enough it's hard to say um so that's kind of where some of that settles in and there's obviously as with any research question you find more questions than answers yeah. so it's trying to keep everything in a thesis sized box is is its own challenge and being good to myself to to like oh, this is a neat question. I'm actually going to write that down and put it somewhere else. So if I want to, I can pursue it again later rather than dismissing it and forgetting like, oh, I don't, maybe do I want to really pursue that? Or yeah. can I fit that in? Can I not fit that in? Um, and I know that's something that a lot of grad students struggle with is is trying to keep something in the f time and research frame that yeah. you have not doing a PhD dissertation for your thesis research. Yeah, so. I had many a meltdown over the the scope creep of yeah. my my thesis when I was in grad school, and it was like, uh, like you said, I would I would kind of go down these rabbit trails for following all these neat questions that I would get, and then as I would go into that, I'd be like, ah, oh, well, how does this even fit into my, th my overall thesis anymore? So I kind of like started making these folders on my computer for, um, wouldn't it be nice if I got to pursue this question and yes. do like a paper on this, like some other time. And my advisor was ruthless with just like scrapping things out of my thesis. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's, it's not lost forever, but it's not going to my thesis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one thing that's hard. I think for people to reconcile is like, you will get to do research again. This isn't your only yeah. project. The research ever. never ends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just kind of like, well, what do you want to do now? What mm -hmm. do you want to do next? And, and saving questions, and which is also kind of fun to take those questions when you go to conferences. Yeah. Just take like a list of questions, and especially conferences as big as like the SAA, mm -hmm. but also regional ones that you might be, say, you know, a lot of my research work, for example, is in the Great Basin. But I've done a lot of work on the, the um, northwest coast, so Oregon, Washington, and such. 
and I find a lot of those research questions and and in the plateau area, like along the Columbia, fascinating. And those are equally great. So I will often go and, you know, as I do some of these other research projects or something on the side or for CRM, I'll have like this these questions that I've come up with. And then I will go to any presentation that relates to those questions because yeah. it's, it's one of those things that it helps keep your interest in the field alive and yeah. from keeps you from getting burnt out i think to some degree because if all you're living and breathing is your one research question it i, I mean it's easy to get burnt out and i've met <laughs> a couple of people that are like after this is done i am never doing this again i hate archaeology and i'm like okay <laughs> that was my thesis too <laughs> i had to take uh several years from uh, not talking about it ever again um, mm. just cause it was so all consuming, but that's such great advice to keep kind of a list of ongoing questions and to workshop those at conferences and, you know, like find people who are working on that and find some common space. Plus it keeps your networks warm. Like you never know where you're going to find some avenue or some, uh, collaborative opportunity, yeah. uh, going to conferences and all that. That's Could, awesome. Yeah. Cause like you said, you can't, I mean, as much as we might try and set like our, our one career path it never goes that way so it's nice to <laughs> have those contacts and interests outside so you know when you do find a space like where you're feeling burnt out or you know one road or path isn't going to work out you have options yeah without having to leave archaeology because that would suck at yeah. least for me what have been some of the more interesting questions that have kind of led you in unexpected directions um so one of them was even just getting to my current thesis work. So originally when I left undergrad, I had been accepted to a graduate program in uh, the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And um, so as a single parent, I had set everything up. We were going to go got our visa applications back and mine had been accepted however my daughter's application had been rejected oh my god so i was in a big state of because this was like three weeks until the flight like i had yeah. everything set up already <sighs> and it was just kind of like what am i gonna do oh wow so the first thing i did was email all of my field school contacts and was like i have to find a job because I, even if, you know, I can make that work out, it's not going to be right now. And I still have to, because, and I don't want to say that U.S. Customs is any better, <laughs> but U.K. Customs is, I swear, the British invented red, red tape. Oh, this, yeah. This is. <laughs> it's so, their national pastime. Exactly. So, <laughs> I mean. It's queuing. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, I mean, that's its own thing, but that was knowing that that was going to be on the horizon, needed a job, found a job within 12 hours. Yeah. Um of finding this out. I guess it was about 24 hours. And um uh, my research changed because pursuing the grad degree in um, Edinburgh was for the human osteology program. Um, and that was something that I was interested in from 
a internship that I did in Malta, which is a tiny country in the Mediterranean. Uh-huh. I worked at the mu- museum there and came across these uh, human remains that were just kind of chilling in a box <laughs> without any label. <laughs> so, As they unfortunately <laughs> tend to do. So <laughs> I, you know, did a, a side research project to figure out what happened and where those came from. And I was just kind of found this really neat rabbit hole of like, these are, you know, from an era or a time period that they didn't have a lot of human remains from because a lot of that early era when they did the excavations in the late 19th century, the bones were tossed. I mean, they didn't really care. There were like some 70,000 individuals or something ungodly large number um, in some of the tombs that they had found and only like a handful of skulls remain, like not even the whole... Wow. Bodies. So they just treated it like overburden and yeah. removed it. To yeah, because they wanted to see what, what it looked like under there. Oh my God. And, uh, you know, this is uh, of the times, you know. Um, so what ended up happening, um, these remains that were in the museum that had been in the storage for um, 30 years at this point, um, you know, I went back and looked into it found out where they came from and was like, this is kind of a unique thing. There isn't a lot of uh, this material here or in, you know, the region in this time period. And it's of interest. There were some previous studies from something else that had some discussion on diet. And so isotope studies have progressed a lot since this study was done in the early 90s and I was like I want to pursue this I want to do isotope studies on human remains for diet marine versus land terrestrial resources yeah those were some of the claims that were made in the early studies and I'm like I'd like to put this to test because there weren't very many due to the expense at the time individuals in this study long story short I ended up following this rabbit hole for a while until that got cut off um now some people might say well you could have just pursued human osteology here in the states and done bioarchaeology however my relationship um with tribal communities and is a little bit situated in uh between there's only a few tribes that really um, like having those types of studies done yeah. or not participatory and they're not where I live. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I kind of took a realistic look and was like, you know, this is really interesting. However, how many jobs in the Northwest are physical anthropology? Not a whole lot. Yeah. Um, and while I still find it very fascinating and Uh, you know area of study I'm like there's so many things that interest me let's see what else there is so uh, this was after so I'd continued working in cultural resource management for a number of years after that and as I was doing that I was kind of looking for other projects Um, one of the areas of research in my undergrad that I was really fascinated in as well because that was my thought was like what interested me let's look at those yeah was um, uh, paleoethnobotany so plant studies um of you know 
people using plants in the past to me i'm like well that ties into the diet idea you know kind of trying to follow the same thought process and got accepted into a program at washington state university um for family reasons i actually turned that one down and then when i so I, i decided to look at other options and such and see what was closer to home and I ended up talking to some of the uh, professors and archaeologists that I worked with, the researchers that I worked with for my um, field school. Uh-huh. And that was an avenue of research that hadn't had a lot, the basketry, they hadn't had a lot of people come to it. Like they, they wanted people to come study it. So I took my personal time and funds to drive, what, Eugene from Portland, it's what, 100 miles? It's yeah. like halfway down the state. Yeah. I did that a few days a week for almost a month. Wow. And was like, I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> I really That's want to. That's a tough drive. It's, it's <laughs> not like that long in the grand scheme of things, but if you're doing that several times a week, that yeah. had to get old. It did. And it got to the point where I'm like, okay, if this is something, if I want to do research, because my thought was if I can do a little bit of research or at least start a project, I can get accepted into a program and kind of go from there. Yeah. However, the problem was, is no one studies basketry anymore over here. Yeah. <laughs> so I was running into this problem of, I've and I've talked to other people that have run into this, of like, you find something that really interests you, and then it's hard to find someone who studies that, that it has the same theoretical bent that you do. Because yeah. sometimes you can find someone that is like, studies the same thing, but they are, you know, have a very strong opinion about a theoretical approach Uh Um, a friend of mine had looked at studying she really wanted to do uh, parasitology archaeoparasitology and that kind of dead-ended because there's one person in I think it's Nebraska (laughs) and she was just like no (laughs) so um no. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. Not going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's lots of roads that you can go down. And obviously that was, it took three acceptances into graduate programs. I finally, um, well, technically, I guess you could say four programs I was accepted into, finally accepted and in, in, uh, began studying at Oregon State University. And while it is an hour and a half commute. <laughs> it, <laughs> it beats a three plus hour commute <laughs> exactly, one way. Exactly. So it was, uh, it, it's been, it's been really great. Um, but that's kind of how that went. And as far as research questions, I mean, you had, did the people in Malta on this tiny Island actually not eat fish? Huh. That was, that was the first research question. The second one, um, was a little more broad, but I was also trying to utilize my connection I had at the time with um, the Maltese archaeologists that I had worked with, and that was like uh, the how long had these fields been used? Like doing sediment um, and soil studies for you know seven thousand years of soil yeah. sediment in in Malta. So while the archaeology is really robust over there, a lot of it. Um, this is kind of true of of the Mediterranean and Europe generally, but it there aren't, and someone may sh- totally correct me for this, but while I was looking at doing this type of work, it was very difficult to find people who did prehistory in North Africa or the Mediterranean, like early prehistory. That was yeah. not 
like paleo anthropology right (laughs) (laughs) like the like uh for example pre um egypt egypt you know like the people who ended up migrating to the nile after libya dried up because that was like when i was doing my undergrad the reason why i did the internship in malta was because i wanted to work in libya in the the sahara Oh, wow. Um, I wanted to work and look at the, the Paleo Lakes there. Yeah. Ironically, I, I work with the Paleo Lake areas I- here in North America. Yeah. But that, you know, while I was in, in Malta, the Arab Spring happened. And that was definitely a big like, well. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like. Guess we're not studying <laughs> the Paleo Lakes. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's been this constant, you know, looking at what interests me and not getting discouraged. Uh-huh. You know, it's that's a big thing is like. At least, you know, it's constantly finding things that interest you. If there's really only one thing that interests you in archaeology, don't be an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a better field for you. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Unless, of course, you know, you, you go into that field with archaeology in mind. Like, yeah. there's people who, um, you know, for example that do ancient DNA studies and work with archaeologists all the time or archaeological textile people who work at museums and help preserve and um, care for, you know, hundreds to thousand year old textiles. So there's, there's lots of related studies, but if (laughs) like don't commit your, and this I guess is like just general life advice too, is like, don't commit your heart 100% to something because you have to be open to to change diversify and and like you said you know just follow everything that makes you curious you know like follow the questions and see where they lead and see if that's a productive avenue like give it a chance yeah stuff like that you never know where those opportunities might pop up i mean stuff that has opened up to me in the past hasn't necessarily always been something that i was aiming for yeah um archaeology in general i never you know asked me 20 years ago or even 15 God, 15, 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> you know, I it would have been, that was sort of a pie in the sky, sort of like, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, it's just not, you know, I, I don't come from an academic background, and it was, it just seemed so remote yeah. in possibility. So. I had similar thoughts when I, you know, was first kind of coming to archaeology, the the thought that I think that dominated my mind early on was how is this ever going to be practical? Yeah. To me personally, like how am I ever going to eke out a living doing this? And, you know, I had some really great mentors along the way that, you know, showed me and, and guided me through making a career out of it and, you know, like sustaining myself. But, um, you know, like early on, I, I was an engineer and, and I was mm. like, you know, I chose engineering because it was practical. You know, like there there were <laughs> yeah. jobs, there were clear career paths for it. Uh, you know, it was kind of like you get this degree and there's a job waiting for you on the other side that equals your degree. Like it's very job specific training. Yeah. Archaeology is totally not that way. It's such a <laughs> nonlinear career path where, uh, you know, the things that you study, uh, you know, may not be what you apply in your day to day job. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's I think that there's something amazing in that, too, on the yeah. you know, it can it can cut both ways, I guess. But I think that there's something amazing in that in that 
you can kind of make whatever you want to out of it. Yeah. And to certain degrees, you know, you've, you've got to keep your eyes open for opportunities and stuff. And so you also have a very, uh, you know, varied background too. You, you did real estate for a while. Yes. And uh, like you have a family too. And yes. I think that you're a great example of, um, of the, the work life balance. You know, you have, you've got a family, your, your daughter's rad as hell. <laughs> uh you know nate's super cool and um you know you guys still find time to do really fun stuff together and you're also pursuing grad school and you know like you found time you know here and there to do like your your summer research you've got you know your fingers in many many pies (laughs) but there's a balance to it so what are what are some of your thoughts on you know it i'm sure it hasn't been it's not easy. No. You know, it's it's very hard <laughs> fought. And I, I think that's one of those things that um, can really, like, break people. Yeah. If uh. you're not careful. I mean, it's one thing, like, and some of this comes from, you know, when I had my daughter, I was hell-bent on making sure that she had a good example. Um, so... Anything that every career change that I made, I had in mind, how, what is she going to get out of this? How is this going to better her life and my relationship with her? So, for example, you mentioned I did real estate. I actually did sales before that, like retail sales for a long time. um, And then decided that, you know, I can make, do the same thing, make more money and create my own schedule so I can have more time because I found myself in retail sales making commission-based income I was just working a lot I was working 12 13 hour days four days a week three to four days a week um, and then doing side jobs so I didn't have a lot of time at home Um, this was when she was very very young and so when I started working real estate that was my goal that was the whole thing Um, however by the time 2007 2008 rolls around um when the market collapsed I realized I was working 90 hours a week and at that point this was just before the official market collapse is I didn't have a paycheck for four months I ate up my savings and was like you know what this isn't really getting me where I want to go it is not improving my relationship with my daughter because I'm having to put her in daycare for a stupid number of hours a week yeah Um, At that point, when I first started, I mean, things were great because it was the, you know, early 2000s and all the things were going well as well. (laughs) And so I went back to school um, and, you know, worked side jobs and stuff. But I didn't go back to school until she started kindergarten. Um, And then a little while after that. Um, I became a single parent, so I took her with me everywhere. The internship I did in Malta, I took her with me. Oh, wow. She went to school, um, a bilingual school there, and did part of second, half a second grade <laughs> in a foreign country. That is so cool. Um, and that was like, I'm like, I've never been to out of the country or even off the West Coast before yeah. that. And I went into... University International Studies office and I'm like I have a child I'm a single parent and I want to do an internship or study abroad what are my options and they were like great you have many options and I'm like really huh so I was able to do that um 
every avenue I took, I made all the grants and scholarship applications I could. Um, and that has been a really big thing to help motivate me, not just be in the money sense, but like, uh-huh. I can actually do this. I got this. That means that I can actually do this. Anything that turned me down or even not just turned me down, but anything that was discouraging. It was like, you know, but I was able to get that like it through my own stubborn willpower and (laughs) cunning, (laughs) one might say. Um, And so that's kind of how I have gone through the attitude of a family life is like my career is important to me because it's what I do day in, day out. Uh But at the same time, like at this point, my daughter's 14. She's in like that time is dwindling. <laughs> yeah. And as time marches by, you know, it's one of those like, how am I going to be able to make this worth it to her? Yeah. So like we moved a lot when she was mm. younger and that was like, I made it, tried to make it an adventure. So she'd look forward to it. Um, now we live in one place for the last few years. And she's like, when are we moving again? I'm like, never. <laughs> she's got the itch. <laughs> yeah. That's just like college. That's when. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so then you can move as much as you want. Exactly. I'm like, find an in, an, like a, an exchange program. I'm like, you're at that age. There's all sorts of stuff in high school you can pursue. Yeah. Um, you know, learn a foreign language. Like it's, that's another thing is I, I, you know, one of my goals was to kind of give her that hunger for, for things. Um, she has a big respect for family time as well. Yeah. Uh, we try and schedule either game nights or like family nights to where we go and see a show. We watch a movie, we do, uh, games at home. Um, I try and make sure my schedule allows that this is sort of one of the few things that I've always been very stubborn on is making sure that there is a consistent time every day for time with her and that was even if I have to stay late for work we always have breakfast every morning Uh so I wake her up and I cook breakfast and only recently has she been preferring cereal (laughs) and she's like ah like come on you don't know how many people don't have this yeah so that's that's always been a big part of it it's just that consistent and um you know rarely on occasion I will have to leave earlier than normal but i will still wake her up an hour to two hours early to get up and have breakfast with me she can go back to bed after that but i think making sure and being stubborn about the time that you have and making sure that you have it no matter where it lands in the week yeah that that you just make it a priority is sort of been my trick to finding some sort of semblance of balance Uh and that goes with relationships too as far as partners like my partner is he works a weird, crazy schedule, too. Um, and so we try and make um, at least every two weeks or so, we make a date night. Yeah. And we will, even if it's a block away, we will walk to a bar and go have a drink and talk and just hang out and chat. Like, just getting out of the house. It doesn't yeah. really matter what we do. Um, we could spend a day or some time in the morning go hiking or something. Um when the mountain opened, we went snowboarding, <laughs> which I, is great. I see you don't have crutches anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, those those I lost earlier this, <laughs> actually a week ago. <laughs> so, 
I was on those for a couple weeks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a lot of it's just making time, no matter what it is, um, or how much money it costs or doesn't cost. It's like one of those few things that's like when my daughter and I would travel a lot, when we would move a lot, that was like in you know when you make a budget, you have certain things that you plan for. Plane tickets and storage space was my rent. Like, I had rent for this amount of time. However, six months to four months or however months out of the year, I had a storage and plane ticket budget. Yeah. Because, you know, that was what it's it is. necessary. Yeah. So that's, you know, <coughs> reorganizing your priorities and, and knowing that you aren't living a nine to five. You aren't living a regular existence generally as an archaeologist. Yeah. Your schedule is going to be different. It doesn't have to be chaos. It doesn't have to be unreachable or uncomfortable. You yeah. just have to kind of find a groove that works. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be a technician forever mm -hmm. <laughs> either. <laughs> um, but if you're a tech for an extended period of time, don't pay rent on a house or an apartment if you don't have to put that right. shit in storage. Yeah. Like, <laughs> It's way cheaper to put it in stores than yeah. it is to lock your stuff up in, you know, a year-long lease. Yes, anywhere. and I, that is one of those those moves. It's like we're expected, I think, as Americans to, like, you know, move out of parents' house, blah, 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 and do yeah. these things. And you don't have to keep your shit up your parents' house. Move out into a storage unit and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go from there. There's your moving out. <laughs> exactly. Because from there you have plenty of time, you know, that you're going to be have paid living whatever yeah. and then you have couch surfing and camping and there's lots of ways to have a couch or a floor to sleep on if you need it if you're in that space to where it's just you yeah you just have to make ends meet and you can adventure i mean you can go and do things um a friend of mine another archaeologist is also a photographer and he has um so he does photojournalism actually in uh Europe and the Middle East on his time off. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so he will work in CRM for a while and then get a plane ticket and go do some photojournalism work, sell his photographs, come back, do some more archaeology. And he'll do stuff kind of, you know, in lots of different areas of the world. Um, I have another friend of mine who's not an archaeologist, he's a geographer, but he had a similar sort of random living experience because he worked in the middle east yeah and ended up having to travel half the year because the country he was living in was like you can't stay here for that long <laughs> so we're gonna pay you to leave yeah <laughs> so it, it's just different there are different ways of of having your time and i know some people get very attached to those cultural norms that were fed spoon fed yeah um for that 1950s quote-unquote normal but no one actually lives that way right <laughs> so. uh, it's just it's i feel like that's financially it's just not financially feasible for no. most early career archaeologists especially and you know kind of like any archaeologist but um yeah like you've got to make financially sound decisions socially sound decisions and i think that it's really interesting that through all of this you've found like the example of making time for breakfast with your daughter every day that is the way that you have built stability mm -hmm. into a career that otherwise requires you to be very flexible and to change your path on a moment's notice oh yeah 
just like you changed your path from Edinburgh to to not going to Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was a whirlwind of an ex- of a day. Let's say. Yeah, <laughs> trials and tribulations. Yes, for sure. yes, that was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> looking back, anyway, that was a very stressful moment. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, for the work life balance, it's also just realizing that if stuff doesn't work out like it's okay yeah something else will work out exactly like you know it's it's hard sometimes and some of this is the lesson of you know the financial collapse and i know some of the younger archaeologists or otherwise um, younger folks may not quite know this because i guess it was 10 years ago now what a horrifying <sighs> 10 years it's 10 been years for us. ago this month yeah um, I actually moved out of my house. I lost my house and um, eventually a couple months later, my car and furniture that I had financed at the time. Oh my God. Um, Christmas Eve. Wow. 2007. Wow. And uh, it was a learning moment yeah. <laughs> um, because I took out of it like, you know, money is not everything. I worked my ass off to make a fairly, I mean, at the time, to me, it seemed like a fairly decent living. I was 23 and making over 50 grand a year. I mean, that, it wasn't too shabby. Yeah. It wasn't rich by any means, but I, I could afford a house and a car in the suburbs as a single parent. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that was all of the things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after that, I'm like, okay, well, what, what really makes me happy? And that gets back to sort of chasing random research questions. Like... Not turning things down because it's not cool or whatever. It's like, well, what what interests you and what what gets you that excitement, that like need to follow and to do things. It's like um, with the grad school, some restlessness with my thesis topic. Yeah. You know, I'll I'll chase a tangent somewhere. Or one of the things that I've done partly because it's so multifaceted, I actually ordered. Um, so working with textiles and fabrics, uh, one of the things that I did was I recently ordered um, fibers of different types of um, plant material that had been processed to get the fibers out so that you can make yarns and strings from it. So I actually ordered the raw fiber and was like, I'm going to learn to spin. Cool. Because I love crafts. Yeah. I'm an art nerd as well as a history nerd. So I am pursuing, you know, the study of how these things are made and why and from where. And the big thing to me in all of my thesis questions is the the materials, the materials harvest and the creation of the object, not so much the object itself. There's been a lot of study in basketry with like you know, very similar to pottery technique and how it's created in the patterns and the uses of the, the object. But I'm like, I want to know why they chose that material. Yeah. Like why that plant? Are why not another plant? Exactly. So that's where I'm like, well, let's learn about these plants and why they might be chosen. So it's like certain, there are certain properties that you're looking for. And I wanted to understand that in a tactile sort of way yeah so while it doesn't necessarily fit into my thesis research strictly it helps me understand the bigger and broader picture of what my thesis research is about yeah so some of it might 
call it background research or whatnot. I mean, it's not something that I'm going to be strictly putting into my thesis background research chapter, but it is something that will help me understand what people are talking about when they're talking about the uh, resources that are being used and, you know, what materials that are, you know, the, so the baskets and the materials that I end up use, uh, studying and that I'm sourcing, I can look at the plant and be like, oh, this has this, these different properties. It was probably made to use or used to make these items. And this is why they grow in these environments. What types of these, you know, where would these environments be located at, at this time? And just kind of putting all of those like puzzle pieces together and they don't all have to be involved in my thesis product necessarily yeah but will help me understand the larger a uh, topic so that i can chase other different colored rabbit holes later in the same <laughs> <laughs> topic string because i'll then you know the idea is of course that you once you finish your thesis <clears throat> you are considered at least a mini expert you're yeah. expert when you have your PhD. You're mini expert when you have a, a thesis. Yeah. <laughs> so once your master's thesis is done, you're like, okay, you know something about this topic. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to necessarily do a thesis on a topic I'm not really interested in just for the piece of paper. Though I did contemplate that option. Some people take that. Because yeah. in especially in cultural resource management, you don't, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's helpful to have a expert topic usually not basketry because you're not finding that in the field and that's people have asked me that oh you you're into the crm okay uh, why are you doing baskets and chemistry like these are lab items yeah <laughs> i think the better question is why are you doing crm and it's like well it, it pays <laughs> <laughs> and it's available you, yeah you get paid to do that <laughs> yes i mean and i've done you know museum work and studies and and a lot of that as well and so that's also an option some of that is keeping my options open I yeah can do crm i can do museum work uh, nine to five stuff would be more of a museum you know and doing sort of the my you know i get a wild hair and want to like get out of town that's crm yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm done yeah. i'm leaving for a month and a half on a project i will see you all later yeah um i always got to go to exotic <laughs> places like uh rural alabama and, and like <laughs> the ozarks and stuff like that yeah no that's it, it's not exotic places but out of cell phone range places <laughs> ah yes <laughs> <laughs> or just or, sometimes it's it's just like one of my favorite projects was the first large project I was on and that actually was not far from here it was about an hour and a half in the high cascades wonderful area beautiful scenery no cell service uh-huh got snowed on that was unfortunate oh. and it sucked and it, oh, actually we got snowed on then we decided that it would be better to move below the snow line so it was like s just sub freezing rain <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. I'd be like, send me back up to the powder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Health and safety talk today. Yeah. Hypothermia. Watch your neighbor. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it, but the fun thing about that too was it's, we all lived in this tiny motel. There was one, of course, motel in this tiny town. Yeah. There was one restaurant slash bar that we all practically lived out of and you know, I had the worst diet in the world because it's all gas station food. Right. But because the gas station was also the grocery store, which was also the liquor, sh liquor store situation. 
And that's pretty common in some of these areas. Yeah. Um, and some of it's just, yeah, meeting new people. You don't have to d- agree with them politically. That d- You don't have to bring it's it easier up, to just avoid those conversations exactly yeah i know some people get kind of freaked out about like oh, they're, oh it's all like crazy trump people out there in rural america only if you talk about trump uh, yeah, yeah i'm like just pff, other than that they're, they're real uh what, what do you call them salt of the earth people yes yeah I, exactly i have found some of the sweetest people in like rural areas and i grew up in a rural area myself so yeah it was like it's no shock for me to go to rural places <laughs> no but yeah well, one of the best things is like being in the field all day and working outside. You have something in common with everyone there. Oh, yeah. Like any of the farmers that are in the local area, the ranchers, you guys the hunters. can. And the hunters. You can talk shop about the environment, the, the weather, the shitty dirt road in, you know, <laughs> two miles up on the left. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, <clears throat> rock slides. It, and he, also these good relationships that you can build, especially if you're out there for a while, can help you in the long term. Yeah. Your truck gets, your field truck gets stuck. You can have someone to call. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or any of that kind of stuff, but um, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's good stuff. Um, and, you know, in case anyone's wondering, well, like, how do you get out of town for that long when you have a child well for better or worse being a single parent my daughter has another parent that she actually visits during the summer so that's where I get field time during the summer and then I usually work museums or lab in the winter so that's been um for better or worse a thing (laughs) yeah and um, while sometimes the field season, of course, overlaps the school year in the spring and in the fall, we've always had close friends that, you know, could take her for a weekend. I never take jobs for more than a week during those windows of time. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, relatives or friends can come and hang out with her for that little time. And that's always when she was younger, especially it was like really cool to have like aunt so-and-so come stay for a week and like they could play games and do art the whole time and she doesn't have to like you know clean her room all the time or you know wash the dishes like i had her do and yeah (laughs) when i first got into crm archaeology uh i can't remember who it was but i i heard someone told me uh well it's good you're single uh you know unmarried and childless because you can't have a family if you're an archaeologist and I, I feel like this episode is Mythbusters for that. Like, <laughs> you can. There are ways to do it well. Uh, there there are definitely a lot of obstacles to it. Yeah. Um, there are limitations um, to those things. But you know, I I think it's great that you've you've found ways to strike a balance with that. And there's definitely a lot of room to improve. Uh, yeah. In the field, you know, in the discipline of archaeology, um, and I th- I've read some things about like how conferences are now pushing to be more child friendly to have some you know child care present uh at a few conferences stuff like that but what are some of the things that you've encountered or some of the things that you've thought of along the way that you think you know could really be improved like what 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 do you see needs to be done to be a more family friendly archaeology oh there's so many um (laughs) one so some of it is, and I'm not sure exactly how to solve this issue in particular, 
but somehow making the field family friendly and yeah. that's not necessarily some people are like well you want to bring your kid to an archaeologist site or like hiking 14 miles on a survey i'm like no <laughs> god no but i don't want anybody <laughs> to do that <laughs> no. and you know if you're at a recovery, like a phase three or an academic site, kids generally aren't bad to have around. Yeah. Like they can do the little jobs like fetching people buckets or, yeah. you know, and they get they get excited about it or have work experience or whatnot. They want to watch you find artifacts, too. Like yes. They can hang out by the screens and sometimes they spot things that uh, <laughs> our old tired eyes don't see. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, for long term, something, and, and this is one of those, I'm not sure how it can be solved, but some sort of way to have a child care option for those of us working in the field. Yeah. So say, like a daycare provider that, you know, hangs out or homeschool. So I think of like actors, for example, Kid actors have tutors, and it's usually one or two of them, or whatever, and they are on site, and they go through the run that way. I don't find that as difficult as people make it sound as far as, oh my god, that is a huge expense. I'm like, do you know how much it costs to pay a huge number of people um their oh, what is the word I'm looking for uh, unemployment oh yeah because they have to leave for the school season like there are so many firms that I, I know of that have a hard time finding techs during the fall because school starts and that's not just because they're grad students or undergrad students. It's because they have kids in school, too. Yeah. Like, that's more challenging. Um, so I think that could be something. Um, I have a whole thought bubble around the temp work situation with techs. Um, I think there's a better way that we can do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and some of that gets into possibly one option being a um like a temp service much like construction workers have or i hate to say the word unions have for different types of um trades because we are an educated trade yeah i don't care what congress says <laughs> yeah <laughs> we have a minimum requirement of a bachelor's degree so we should not be paid minimum wage right and the secretary of the interior has standards for what constitutes an archaeologist yes and shippo has standards for what constitutes an archaeologist yes so why shouldn't we be able to unionize why shouldn't we be able to organize and demand child care yeah. And that's one of those things that has really drawn me more lately. And, you know, I'm, I don't ask my guests to ever voice political opinions, but um, I've been drawn lately more and more to the Democratic Socialists because they're demanding mm -hmm. one single payer health care. And, uh, you know, along their, their long list of things that they're pushing for, um, 
basic child care provided for all, mm-hmm. you know, to have workplaces just acknowledge that child care is a serious issue that needs to be tackled in order to, you know, open up more opportunities for people. Yeah. You know, there are so many obstacles to being able to pursue opportunities and making sure that your children have proper care shouldn't be one of them. Yeah. Well, and even opportunities for the kids. I mean, if you are getting paid little of nothing and you're just trying to get your kid watched so that you can go to work, like yeah. this is something I ran in when my daughter was very young, before I got my degree or anything, you know, it was hard to find anyone, quote, like certified as, and I did air quotes, certified <laughs> for daycare. It's like if they're not immediately related to you, and even if they are, <laughs> like, do you want your like three year old sitting in front of the TV all day while you're at work? Right. Not usually. Uh-huh. I did not. I've always been very like anti mass screen time. Um, and that had always been a real challenge. So I don't think it is out of the question to be like, you know, good daycare should be standard and we shouldn't pay daycare people an unfortunately small amount of money. I mean, granted, they don't have to make $100,000 a year, but, you know, if they have 10 kids... <laughs> you should make enough to be watching 10 kids because that's i mean for all that is holy i like why <laughs> i can say the same for teachers but you know it's, it's sticking to one topic um so you know you have individuals out there in the world who can afford a nanny who to live full-time in their house yeah i don't see how it is out of the question and I know this is not currently feasible in the CRM system we have now. I thought that RV was about to hit us. <laughs> that was why I, I just kind of like bug-eyed and like recoiled. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't turn around just then. <laughs> um, Sorry. That's all right. So this the CRM system we have now and the pay structure and the way that things work today does not support this at all. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons why, which I'm not going, that's a whole other episode, (laughs) (laughs) but as far as like, I don't think it should be out of the question to be able to provide employees with this type of opportunity because obviously, like I said, some individuals like have this person just for their one kid until they're, you know, who knows, 14, 12. And while obviously archaeologists cannot afford that individually if say you had you know someone three different individuals with kids because that's one of the main reasons why i see people leave archaeology yeah is they have children and it's like well it can it can be worked out but you have to have an employer that believes it can be worked out yes and you have to be willing to be uh creative yeah and everyone has to be uh, somewhat enthusiastic about it to some degree. Um, I have had employers that have been wonderful in making sure that they are able to stick to a schedule that I give them. Yeah. Um, like what my availability is. And they will still call me. Like right now my availability is little of none. But I actually am on a call list for w- one firm because sometimes they just need somebody. 
and that's great. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things. It's like you have your availability. You have your options. That doesn't mean you're not employable. Um, you may need to diversify your work schedule. Um, when Sitar was younger and I worked CRM, I did, I worked for, I had my, as you said, fingers in a lot of pies. I had, I think, at one time, five firms that I was on a consistent call schedule with. Yeah. And, um, and I worked part-time at a local museum. So I had like, uh, and this is kind of, you know, finagling and being able to really kind of work your budget to a certain extent and, yeah. and how you frame uh, your expenditures and always having until I became a student. The truth was I always had four months, four to six months of living expenses in savings because you never know how long winter is. Yeah. And archaeology being a seasonal endeavor, just like any like service, forestry, like anything like that is going to have a similar, like we're not the only ones with these issues. And that's what, while it is a unique occupation, like there are other occupations that have these similar issues and i think it would be healthy for us to look to how they handle these issues um you have i mean there are some differences obviously but they can be reconciled not you know two different occupations are obviously going to be different they're never going to be exactly the same just with different names yeah so you know taking a look at say people working um in its parks like national parks you're giving housing housing oftentimes mm -hmm. crm does the same it's in usually a hotel room <laughs> sometimes yeah. a camping site um but it's you have you know board yeah. or room uh, room and board paid for 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 both situations however one situation you have your family with you the other you're expected to leave them behind which is not i don't think an ideal situation for anybody yeah um and there's a lot of historical context that goes into why archaeology kind of is this the way that it is now but i don't think that reason doesn't give it the excuse to continue to be that way i think we can change it absolutely but after uh last night's <laughs> so in context last night was the senate bill tax reform vote and uh i'm sure you know we'll see how how the reconciliation goes between the house and, and senate bills but yeah that um was unnerving <laughs> it's still a little frightening we'll see where it goes but it doesn't necessarily i know encourage like positive change and all uh, for people being motivated to be like well you know that could be where we are but but what do i do right now um and some of it's just like, you know, friends and family. Yeah. There is a reason why the, there is that saying, like, it takes a village to raise a child. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. That's always true. Yeah. And I know that some people today in, in urban areas tend to be very like, I am raising my child and it is only me. I'm like, well, that's unhealthy for everyone <laughs> it really is and that's that's the kind of mindset that really enables gentrification is the kind of like walling off and yeah making making these like private bubbles in communities it, it really fractures communities and there's a lot of strength in communities 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously use your good judgment, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if your kids are school age or even preschool age or if they're in daycare, there are other parents around. I mean, yeah. your kid isn't totally in a bubble. Have the other parents over for coffee and a play date. Like, get to know these people. Learn if there's any of them that have daycare needs themselves. Do daycare exchanges. Yeah. I mean, I didn't pay for much of the daycare (laughs) of my daughter's young life. I mean, there were some windows where I did pay out the nose, but there was a lot that I of time periods where I couldn't afford that. And so I just used social networks and be like, you have a kid about the same age. They get along really great. Let's have them over for a play date or spend the night. You guys go out on a date and, you know, it's it's a give and take, like taking turns. Yeah. And I think that helps not just you and your career and your social life or relationships with your partners, which it does do that. But it also helps create that community that we tend to be missing, like you're saying. With walling ourselves off and being like, this is how I'm doing things right here in my bubble. Um, you know, find other, especially in cities, like you can find other people that have similar thought processes, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, find those other people and just get out and, you know, make new friends. <laughs> 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 and that yes. helps your your kids learn to make friends and to meet people and that's a positive social development for them as well. I mean, I know some people tend to and this isn't a uh, I'm not pointing fingers and I know everyone parents differently and my view on parenting is that you should not your child is not a pet. Yeah. Like you don't There's dress a them reason up. I have not brought up uh <laughs> my my Adventures in pet care as a CRM archaeologist or as a, you know, yeah. leaving to do research for three months at a time. You know, it's, it's a, those are two very different things. Exactly. Pet care and child care are very, very different. Yes. So, I mean, a lot of it is, is that you are raising a human being. You're making an adult. So everything is in a process of them being a positive, like, how do you want them to be as an adult is is one way to to view parenting yeah and obviously that's not for everyone but i think that is a really great way to conceive of like what kind of things do i want them to experience how do i want them to to be treated and how do i want them to see me acting because you know as they say it's they watch they don't listen so (laughs) that's i guess in a nutshell um and which also helps just the work-life balance of social life. Like, yeah. my God, I had a few years ago when it was just her and I up here in Portland, um, I had a, a what was it? A, my best friend's brother lived in the city and his girlfriend had a daughter the same age. And so we did daycare exchanges all the time and we hung out like they would be playing like he'd pick or she would pick my daughter up from school. They would play after school. I'd go after work, get back there we'd have a glass of wine and then go home because we live nearby so it was like this you know it helped me sort of decompress from the day and it's someone to talk to um even if you're not a single parent like having those social networks is so important for your own sanity as well and if you can kill two birds with one stone you know (laughs) (laughs) it's it's good and yeah just we're social beings, yeah. as we know as archaeologists, in oh, theory. Yeah. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
um, <laughs> in practice, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we have to we have to kind of remember that we may not be necessarily self aware, conscious of our needs as social beings, but yeah. to to be aware of that and reflect on it, and you know, it's just very good to be reminded of that. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, because <laughs> it's easy to get in the career stretch and panel of like these are my goals um recently i've been sort of looking at bigger picture <coughs> items for goals in uh, mostly not out of my own desire is for of course an application for something <laughs> <laughs> i have to write a professional development statement so where do i want to go well you know as we just talked about Archaeology is fairly non-linear. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't know how to even, (laughs) (laughs) where do I go from here? So, you know, like, okay, well, I should write about where I want to be. Okay, well, so where do I want to be? And that isn't something that I had thought about too heavily because I always just kind of look at my options and go like, "Mm, that one. (laughs) Rather than having an end point in mind. Yeah. Um, I've done that for years. And so I'm kind of like, okay, well, you know, let's do the traditional one-year, five-year, ten-year goals. And then I'm like, well, so there's professional. But then, of course, professional hinges on your personal goals. Yeah. Do you want to have that family and settle down to have kids? Because whether or not you can work anywhere, you still have to have some time off to have a child. As far as, you know giving birth and (laughs) healing physically and emotionally from the process (laughs) Um, and financial goals Mm -hmm. because both of the professional and especially the personal goals hinge on your financial goals like you so those are sort of my three categories and my financial and personal goals were fairly underdeveloped (laughs) yeah so you know taking a look at at all of that and kind of it doesn't have to be linear. You can have a web of or a tree of if this, then this. What are sort of the various options? And being open to the fact that none of it may work out, and yeah. that's okay. But it at least is an exercise in what options are out there rather than being caught in a situation of, oh, shit, this didn't work. I don't know what to do with my life now. Yeah. If you're constantly reacting, then how much control do you have? Yes. You know, if you're actually pursuing things and kind of like forging a path, then, you know, you can you can kind of make some some stability out of out of, you know, like we had talked about earlier, a career that really requires some flexibility and some quick thinking. Yeah. Being quick on your feet and being able to think of those how to react and how to respond to those changes definitely takes some as with anything exercise yeah (laughs) and like you said with with having kind of a general master plan that's also flexible but a general master plan you can whenever something you know comes up that is you know a a wrench in your spokes you can say well how does this fit into my master plan like it does does this event um really matter yeah you know and, and if it doesn't then let it wash away yep and you know regroup and get back onto your path and you know if if an event happens and you're like this is a pivotal moment i need to choose to pivot or not Mm -hmm. then you know maybe pivot i don't know yeah but definitely thinking about it and not being solely reactionary is definitely a big part 
of yeah. all of this. And yeah. also what things are flexible and what things aren't. I mean, we talked about earlier the fact that I make sure that make breakfast, have breakfast with my daughter. I'm not willing to get up and go to a class an hour and a half away at 8 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 9 a.m. is pushing it because that means I have to leave here between 7 and 8 yeah. if I have to be there by 9. Mm-hmm. Or earlier than that, like six between 6.30 and 7. If And, you know, she doesn't start school until like 9, 10. <laughs> to like, and she's 14. Yeah. Like, so I'm like, she, I'm sure she's not a morning person. No, she's not. <laughs> like any teenager, she's like, I want to sleep in. I'm like, I'm sorry. We have to have breakfast. And because we've been doing it for so long, too, it's not much of an arguing point. She yeah. will sometimes be like, so I'll, I'll go in to wake her up. And I'm like, well, what do you want for breakfast? She's like, sleep. <laughs> Like, no, that's not an option. These are the <laughs> options. Pick one. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm just going to make something and drag you out of bed. <laughs> like, sleep. Give me a double helping of sleep. Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, oh. man. <laughs> well, here's how I like to wrap up episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, where can people find you? So you're on you're on Twitter. Yes. Uh, you're on you're on the Women in Archaeology podcast. Yes. So everybody go check out the Women in Archaeology podcast. There are super crucial perspectives being shared there on super crucial issues. Uh, but you're also on Twitter. Where can people find you on Twitter? Um, Archifem or at Archifem. Um, and I am pseudo active on Twitter. It's anything from archaeology, native interests, and uh, political viewpoints that I tend to, to post up there. So um, it's not strictly archaeology, but uh, related things, as I mentioned before. So many things yeah. that <laughs> that are related. And, you know, you can't have American archaeology without native input, in my yep. professional and personal opinion. So th- those viewpoints and issues are, are on Twitter as well. I am on Facebook as well, um, and that's just, you know, you can search my name, Kirsten Lopez. Um, I'm in a hard hat, so it's hard to miss the CRM <laughs> reference there. And um, I am also on some of the more professional sites, so um, or academic, I guess you could say. Uh, so academia.edu and uh, ResearchGate, mm-hmm. which I am improving my updates on shortly um being the research sites i don't like adding stuff unless it's actual results so that's something that's slow in coming but if you're interested in my research that i mentioned earlier uh, you can follow me on that um and then of course as all professionals should be i'm on linkedin so nice. i'm i don't have a personal page besides all of those social media sites because that's enough to keep up with in yeah, grad school seriously <laughs> so i'm like well <laughs> yeah that's so that's that i've been really lagging behind on go dig a hole.com uh, yeah i have it's several a beautiful s- site thank you <laughs> i love the way it looks uh <laughs> i need to make it uh i just need to add more stuff to it uh yep. yeah i i've got a lot of drafts in <laughs> In, in pending, but it's yeah. one of those things I've, I've got to go back and, you know, flush them out and make them go on there.
Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is godigahole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.